Greetings, citizen. Welcome to the show, and thank you for listening. For more of the art of wargaming in your life, definitely check us out on Instagram and Facebook. If you'd like to support the show, we have a Patreon account where you can do just that for as little as $1 a month. What we can offer will expand as the show does. If you don't have extra funds but would still like to help us out, you can give us a like, share, or five-star review wherever you listen to podcasts. Want to get in touch? Feel free to message us or hit up our email, artofwargamingpodcast at gmail.com. We look forward to continuing the conversation with you because we know the world is vast, with many different ideas on tactics and strategy that can be applied to the games we enjoy. You're listening to the Art of Wargaming on the Ear Firm Network. General Strategy. Welcome to the Art of Wargaming on the Ear Verm Network. I am Yaga Malark, and today's episode has to do with general strategy. Before we get into that, just a, a little something beforehand. Uh, TF and I have been playing this uh, crusade of the Blood Angels against my Gene Stealer cult. And at the lower power level, when we were doing 25, I was doing exceptionally well. We've popped up to 50 power level at this point, and I am finding it to be a much more difficult game. It's interesting how the different levels, the uh, point values, benefit different armies in different ways. And so the, the ways that I've been trying haven't been terrible. I haven't been necessarily losing by a large amount, but losing. I remember uh, losing is losing. So uh, I'm trying to figure out some tricks and ways to get around that. Uh, maybe try some new new things, considering that he seems to have figured out the tricks I had. It's time for me to evolve. Time for me to pick up some new ones. So that's a challenge I'm looking forward to, as normal. Uh, the only other thing that I suppose I have to talk about is that I'm back with my students. And I'm absolutely enthused about that. I love volunteering with this program. I love these students. I love what it represents and I love the quality people that it has brought to the community. You know, again, I, I, uh, I've lost track at this point, uh, which is nice. That's a good thing. That's a good problem to have because it means that a program is succeeding and that there are folks who are being reached by it. So, I am happy to be a part of that experience and absolutely thrilled to be in a place where my extremely nerdy 20 years worth of fighting knowledge actually comes in handy. You know, most people on the, on the street don't want to talk about that. I'm like, hey, you guys want to talk about the perfect way to throw a kidney wrap? And they look at you weird. You know, you're in the line at the bank and you're like, hey, so high crosses, right? Yeah, no idea. Nobody gets it. Anyways, so it's it, it's nice. It's nice to be in a place where one's skills are useful. So, uh, and originally, when we started this podcast, it was uh, supposed to be an extension of the Officers Academy that I was running for said program. So, uh, we have come a long way, but the mission of the show remains the same. To teach and to examine old texts from a new point of view uh, to help with the games that we enjoy. Well, I don't have a whole lot else to talk about this uh, intro, so let's uh, jump right into uh, dealing with concepts that are simple, but not easy. The 
central theme of today's episode is largely the same theme as the show itself has overall. And it's the idea that things in war, things within military science, are often very simple, but they're not easy. And that's going to be kind of what we're examining today throughout the course of this episode. But let's begin this uh, new section, which is the second book, air quotations, of this overall a book, not air quotations. I'm not sure why I use the air quotation tone. So he starts this one off, and of course he's going to be using uh, various references to the last section. Um, that's part of the reason why he laid the groundwork last time around, was to be able to come back and talk about it when it was relevant. Uh, but this, for this section, he's defining strategy as the employment of the battle, as the means toward the attainment of the object of the war. Right, that's, our, that's our strategy. And the strategy itself has less to do with the battle itself and more to do with the forces themselves and the preparation. Remember that, that whatever we want to accomplish, we have to make sure that we have the means to do so, right? We had talked about that last time, making sure that whatever goal we were going to accomplish was realistic. We need to organize those means, though. Just because we have an excellent army doesn't mean much. I mean that we have an excellent army. You know, somebody can play the custodies, but if they play exceptionally poorly, they don't know how to use those custodies, it doesn't matter that they use one of the best um, armies within the entirety of, <laughs> of 40k, you know? Or at least it is at the time of this recording. I can't imagine they'd be bad at any point. So that has less to do with the force, the, the, like the, the game itself and more what you know. And of course, when you're dealing with something like gene stealers or, or, or things that are more niche, more high risk, this is even more important. The preparation, the planning that comes in beforehand. And this is before the battle is even joined. This is the overall plan for the different campaigns and the regulation of combat. In whatever case that may be, whether it's a series of fights on a particular day or uh, just the one fight or one match, we have a goal. It's usually to win. But uh, there's, there's an overall goal that we use this to get towards. And so strategy is how we do that. Strategy, of course, like he says, is how we, is the process by which we work towards our object. Because the war itself is not the object. You know, some of us play the game just for fun. And that's something different. But the, in the case of war, war is for a reason. It takes a reason to get people motivated to do so. There's a lot that goes into war that isn't just math. And that's something that we've, we've absolutely seen. You know, last episode we were talking about how in, uh, in revolutionary France, the reforms were so ill-received in the like, rural regions that it led to a full-fledged counter-revolution. Right? And so that, that was something that it wasn't about the numbers and calculation. That was something unpredicted. Something that didn't go according to plan. So, but we need to have our strategy, is what we're, what we're kind of working towards. And we're, we base our strategy based off of theory. And the theory that we're discussing is the theory that we've learned about in previous chapters. We don't want to rehash all of the highly technical <laughs> speak that uh, Klaus Woods went into in this last section. But um, it influences how the strategy is carried out. You know, obviously, uh, whatever theory we're working with is kind of where we take our framework from. 
whether it be if we're coming from a tradition like a you know an ancient Chinese, um, you know like a Min tradition or a mid fifteenth century France tradition, like it doesn't that they're going to be different theories that are based on different realities. And any good theory, regardless of time or place, uh, has to strive toward being the most efficient, really. Like, that's what we're going towards. Um, and, and that's not too little and not too much, right? That's, that's what efficient means. Because we have too little, we've dedicated too little, we're probably not going to achieve the object of our action. If we dedicate too much, then we are wasting you know, that, that effort, that energy could have been spent elsewhere. And so this, this is one of the toughest parts of leading or of, of playing any sort of wargaming is trying to find this balance right here. You know, uh, and uh, in, in this section, Clausewitz is saying that to understand these things, to, re to really get into this, the reason that um, Frederick the Great was great is because he understood this. He was working with a, a small force, limited resources. And so doing just the right amount of effort was very important. And any of these theories are of course judged by the final result. We can have something that looks ab like amazing, brilliant on paper. It might, it might seem to answer for every viable option on the field. It could be a work of masterpiece, but if the results aren't there, then it really doesn't matter. All the best effort in the world, all of the, the best ideas on paper, if they don't produce the desired result in the field, are just a fantasy. You know, I, I, and uh, because Belagarth and, and similar things are technically LARPs, occasionally you have people come out and their whole character is based around the idea of being some sort of awesome you know, they're, they're, they've been slaying people forever, or whatever the case may be, and they, they give themselves skills just coming into it. And that's all fine and dandy. You can call yourself the Dark Lord of Shemadanana, who has slain, you know, whole mountains in one flash of your golden sword of abacus, or whatever. But unless you can actually do that on the field, nobody cares. Nice theory. Nobody cares. Still fun, but still, you, know, you understand what I'm saying. Uh, and so when we're looking at strategy, when we're looking at the means that we need to do so and the forms that work the best, it's very simple. And this is something else that Clausewitz was talking about in this section. He's like, anybody who says that this stuff is convoluted or that it's difficult to understand is overcomplicating things because it doesn't take an absolute genius to go, the oblique is awesome. If we get the localized numeric superiority, like rolling up the one flank, destabilizing our enemy and making it so that they have to be on the back foot and, and constantly repositioning, awesome. Really good technique, but it doesn't take somebody who's super brilliant to grasp it. And in fact, if it was that easy, if it was just about studying these simple techniques, the phalanx, the, the, the blitzkrieg, whatever techniques were awesome, if that was all it took, then a schoolchild could do this. Generals, hang up your, your stirrups. Go and sit down. We got the kindergartners on this case. But it's not just understanding these forms and means of strategy, which are easily learned. 
it's these moral forces, the moral forces once again coming into effect. And these things also come into effect when we deal with wargaming in a very big way. But when we're dealing with actually making this strategy work, it is easy, or it, it's simple, but it is, it is really not easy. But, but to make it happen, it requires a great strength of character, right? Integrity, believing in oneself, that again, that boldness, that confidence that it takes to command an army in history's case, but the, the confidence to go on the field or, or, or step up to the match knowing that you know what you're doing. The next is great clarity of thought or perception, being able to see what is going on through the fog of war, being able to see the surest path to victory. And then lastly, we need steadiness of mind, not going on tilt when we are goaded or when we lose something, but instead repositioning and rethinking our strategy in order to continue moving towards victory without stepping in our own way with emotions. Now, some of us can do one, maybe two of these very well. Some people have very good integrity and, and confidence in themselves. But maybe that leads to a bit of pride, and that means that their steadiness of mind is off. They're easily brought out by that pride. But let's say that somebody has very clear perception. They can see what to do. They have a, like a very clear vision of how to achieve victory. But perhaps not the physical prowess or the, the strength of presence to push it forward or the integrity to really hold it together or that steadiness of mind that it takes when in the face of adversity. So having one, maybe two of these is pretty common. But having a commander that exemplifies all three, well, that, that is when you run into the greats. That's when you run into folks like Frederick the Great. And this is a section where Clausewitz really praises him. But again, it's not for stuff like the oblique. And he tells us, he says, don't praise these commanders, these great commanders, for what they do in the field. Anybody can flank. Anybody can get back there and disrupt a supply line. Anybody can spot a weakness in the enemy line and exploit it. Those things in of themselves are not brilliant. And they are not necessarily why we should look to these commanders for inspiration. The reasons that we should look to these commanders for inspiration is that they are able to bring all of that together and make it work. And they have these personal traits that we've talked about, and they're able to make this execution happen reliably. It's not enough to know. It's not enough to think that you can burn side. It's a matter of being able to, to move forward with it and put all of it together in such a way that it works. Frederick had a hard job. When he invaded Silencia, he had enemies on every side and with a, a very much smaller force, and he made it work, partially because he knew how to use his means in an efficient way, right? Not too much, not too little, but also because he had the fortitude, just the sheer mental fortitude and strength of will to make it happen. And so this is necessary for us too. When we approach the border, when we approach the, the fight, we need these things as well. There's a strength of character that comes into it to, to resisting being tired. You know, to making sure that we're out there giving our best. That's a strength of character, especially on day three, where we may be tired. We, we may 
uh, be, be lacking in some ways. And so in this particular case, that, that strength of character will fill in the gaps. Great clarity is nice. Knowing where the enemy line is weak, knowing who their strong players are, knowing who their weak players are. But these things are excellent. Being able to look across your board and, and be able to see what you're dealing with. You know, you got, okay, these are Necron Immortals right here, and I know their stats are, you know, I've seen these before. That clarity of thought and perception, very important. And then, of course, there's steadiness of mind, which is just across the board, not going on tilt. Not letting your opponent mess with your state of mind, whether it be make you angry or shocked or whatever the case may be, but just keeping that steady hand. And this one, this one is honestly the hardest. Many of us think that we have this kind of steadiness of mind until we are in a situation where we're under fire. Perhaps in a real way. Sometimes, like when the, when the, the bullets are flying, that shows us how steady we are. And you really don't know. Just like if you watch on the side from fighting, you see people and they're out there, you know, beating the crap out of each other. And you think, oh, okay, I could do that easily. That's very different than stepping onto the field and looking across at somebody who looks at you like they know what they're doing. Like they're, you're a piece of meat or something like that. And stepping against this person and, and knowing knowing what you're up against. And, and especially if you lose once or twice, like so a lot of times when you're teaching new people, they'll step in and they have this, this confidence, right? This, this boldness. And then you just, you beat them or I, you know, I beat them because I'm, I'm kind of used to this. I'm, my Belagarth career is older than my students. So it's very typical, typical for me to be able to win reliably against them. And I can understand how I can be intimidating. I try not to be, of course. I smile. I engage with people. I do everything I can to not be intimidating, but there's just something about a, a larger person on the field who knows what they're doing that is intimidating. And so the steadiness of mind comes into factor here as well. Can a person hold their own against somebody that they know that they're probably going to lose to? And there's a fear there to it. There's a fear to be, be, you know, to being hit just in the first place. There's a fear to losing. There's a lot of fear that goes into it. And we can learn steadiness of mind. It can also be a learned trait. But in the greats, you often just see it plain. Because they have to make the difficult happen. They have to make these simple ideas into the difficult execution. Like we're saying again, if we're dealing with simple mathematics, if we're dealing with simple concepts, obliques, frontal assaults, rear guard, the number of troops that we're going to need, the number of wagons that we're going to need to process or bring the, the food to them, and then out of shot, like all those numbers boiling up, that stuff is easy. If that was all we needed, then accountants would be the very greatest generals on the planet. But that's not all it takes. Because that's not all there is to war. And that's not all there is to what we do either with wargaming. Showing up with the right gear, showing up with a good crew. These are all good things. Showing up with a nice army that you're practiced with. Very good things. They set you up in a good place. But the execution with it, actually using it to achieve what we want. Well, that's where the skill comes from. And 
Because so, it has to overcome the moral forces that might be tearing it down. And moral forces, like we've said before, are not something that we can usually account for in a battle plan moving forward. They're just not. We can, we can suppose, we can try to theorize or, or, or you know, think on the, on the idea of what will be necessary, of how our troops will be behaving, how our unit mates will feel, how uh, the dice rolls are going to go. You know, there's no way of really knowing how the moral factor is going to play in. And that's the hard part of any of this. Because the, the morale forces, of course, take their, their toll on the troops. You know, you want to be a part of a winning side. If you're watching your, your unit mates or your, you know, your fellow soldiers in the case of history, you know, if they're dying from cholera or suffering from typhoid or, you know, they've, they've, they're missing limbs and they're in pain, they're hungry. You've got all sorts of things that can really take their toll on the morale of troops. Well, hopefully that's not happening within Bell. Nobody's getting typhoid. I hope. But this also takes its toll on the commander, too. Because most commanders are not inhuman. You don't find a whole lot of sociopaths that are able to work within a, a system like that. And, and so they still have to be around it. They're not so far removed that, that they are not experiencing this suffering and seeing the privation, especially in the case of these French commanders in the time period that we're dealing with. You know, they're having to watch their troops starve. They're having to watch their troops um, go through some of, the, some of the most deplorable conditions. And it's not like they don't feel for them. They see the fear you know, if you're, if you're commanding forces and you, and you are around folks and they are afraid for their lives, how does that not stagger one's mind? How does that not put one on the back foot? And of course, the sacrifices that we ask people to make, especially within actual war, the sacrifices that are made. Um, you, know, you, you think of Dunkirk, the evacuation at Dunkirk. Well, there was another fort. There was another group of soldiers who were basically used as a decoy and they gave their lives willingly and Churchill was still haunted by that decision. It was one of the most uh, upsetting decisions that had to be made in that entire conflict was uh, using those folks being sacrificed. And that's not the one and only time that's it's happened all throughout history and commanders have to live with that knowledge. They have to live with themselves. Again, this this uh, in a much much smaller way is true for us too. Within what we do, in, in particular, when we're dealing with physical war gaming like Belagarth, you know, we our commanders still have to be around things. They're not around cholera, but they are around drama. You know, there's the various th even in a very well functioning unit, there's still going to be minor disagreements or issues, political issues that spring up and can wear. You know, if they're intense enough or if they're, if a commander's not prepared for them, it can wear at the mind of a commander. Of course, weather, hunger, food, sleep deprivation, all these sorts of things can also take their toll. Again, not just on the troops, but on a commander themselves, on a leader for the field themselves. And a commander who is weak like this, and I don't mean weak, like it's, I don't mean it as a valued term. 
But commanders, again, need to be seen as having that strength of character, character the, the clarity of thought, and the steadiness of mind. And if they are perceived to not be this way, then it can promote bad discipline. And it moves its way down the ranks. If you've got bad attitudes in your command staff when we're dealing with you know the people in the games that we play, if there's bad attitudes at the top, that goes straight down the organization, right down to the troops. It can infect everything. Bad attitudes are team killers. And it promotes bad discipline, and it results in a loss of respect. Because unfortunately, in a lot of cases, a commander has to set themselves apart. They cannot seem as human as the people that they're leading. Even though that seems counterintuitive, that we would very much like our commanders to be that way, if you recall in the very first part when you had the, uh, the citizen army, that had formed and was first marching forth from Paris and, and doing battle with the enemies of the Republic, uh, you had some issues with discipline because folks were electing their own commanders, but then also arguing with those commanders because they felt like they should have a say anyway, anywhere because of liberty and, and everything there. And so because of this uh, humanization in a bit of, as it was, there was a lack of respect. There was a lack of military discipline in that particular case. And so even though we don't have military structure for the most part in the games that we play, or, you know, actually in other wargaming, you do. Like, I know in a lot of paintball crews and that sort of thing, they have a far more structured environment to what they're, to what they're doing there. But regardless, a commander has to be able to keep their wits about them and at least seem to be strong and clear of thought and steady of hand because then they're going to get the most respect. They're going to get people who are more willing to follow them regardless of if they actually feel strong or if they feel clear of mind. Fake it till you make it, right? So that's the hard part, right? That That, that is the, the one that you imagine Washington at Valley Forge in the American Revolution and the, the horror that he would have witnessed while there. The sheer humanity, just the, 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 the profound suffering that occurred. But he came out of that being able to command. He was still of the right mind to be able to lead American forces toward victory. Instead of being crushed by the experience, instead of having his heart broken by the experience, he managed to continue leading folks, folks who continued to see him as a beacon. Half the folks, you know, thought he was leading them to their doom, and the other half of folks thought that he was some sort of savior. And of course, he was in between. He was, he was just a man who experienced fears and doubts and concerns, just like any other man. But that wasn't the point of being a leader. It's not about our issues as a leader. It's about tending to the needs of those around us. And when we stop to do that, it, it, it breaks down. It breaks down. Order breaks down. So that wraps that up for the most part. We, we kind of see how um, when we're making theory and we're bringing it all together, we need to make sure that we understand that there are certain moral factors that we just cannot understand. So we got to keep it loose. We got to keep it loose. And, we're, and so we're moving around. And so <clears throat> when we have a military force that is moving around, you know, whether it be a, a unit on the battlefield or a, a small group of uh, models moving around on a tabletop, 
where there is an assemblage of those armed forces. So we're going to kind of start going into the next section. And this is, we're going to have an observation, which is what we're about to go into. And then four things that proceed from said observation that will be explained in subsequent um, chapters, in subsequent episodes. But this observation that we're dealing with, by the mere assemblage of armed forces at a particular point, a battle becomes possible, but doesn't always take place. Okay, duh, right? Just because something could happen doesn't mean that it will happen. Now, this, this is kind of like a proof. There's a statement right here that you go, okay, yeah, that's absolutely true. And then we can build on that because we know that that part is at least true. Clausewitz says that even the possibility of combat, even the possibility of an, of, of an encounter should be regarded as reality. How many times in our readings have we found commanders that let their guard down because they simply regarded a possibility as that? They didn't necessarily consider it seriously. And then they were punished for it. So these, this possibility, anytime we have that possibility, it needs to be treated seriously. We need to be making sure that we watch that. And the first point that can be made about this is that possible combats are, on account of their result, to be looked upon as real ones. A combat that doesn't happen can still be a successful combat. So let's, let's take a look here at some examples. First example is if we're chasing a fleeing enemy and they surrender simply because they know that they got got, well, that's a potential combat that was avoided simply because our forces were there exerting pressure. Another example would be occupying a province that deprives our enemy of means. That's not necessarily a direct conflict. We're not physically smashing into their army. But by occupying this area, we might be starving them. We might be taking away the objective that they're looking for. So these possible combats can be used to achieve victory, like even if no blood is drawn. And so, of course, there's the deterrent factor, right? Just because somebody has superior numbers, or they're in an excellent defensive position, or they're intimidating in some other fashion, well, that can make another, an army turn away from their objective. Boom. There's another win under possible combat conditions. Next, we have the fact that there's a twofold object of combat, and that object consists of either the indirect and the, and the direct, and how they relate to one another. Our direct object in combat, of course, or in, in strategy, is to bring our enemy to battle, right? To fight them and to beat them. The indirect object is any activity that is not combat that leads to an advantage. So as we were talking about before, occupying a province that at once deprives our opponent of, you know, points or field control or food or whatever, depending on the situation, that in of itself does not beat our opponent, but it does lead to a, a distinct advantage for ourselves. And the same can be said for any other sort of, of again, indirect activity that pushes Intimidation is a great one. It's absolutely a great one. Positioning is fantastic. So any, like a lot of these things can be used to, to bring it in, to dial it in towards the idea of, of victory, which is the whole point of combat. 
Now he lists um, this idea of examples. And in his example, there's some more references to Napoleon. We haven't quite gotten there in our stories yet. And so um, suffice to say that the example that we look at are like what we're doing in, in part three. You know, we're looking for these possible situations and how combat and the lack of combat influence a campaign, influence a strategy. When this view is not taken, when we are not looking at the field as a bunch of potential combats and taking those potential combats not only seriously, but also as opportunities to improve our situation and, and by chance take away advantages from our enemy, this is the good way to look at it. And if we don't, we are get, perhaps giving value to other things. We're giving value to uh, things that do not deserve it. <laughs> things that, that don't, that's false. It's false value. Because we need to look at the, the whole series of events, right? There's, there's a lot that goes in toward a victory, is what we've been saying this whole time. There's the combats, and then there's the things that go around the combats, the political issues, the food, the equipment. There's so much that goes into a victory. And one of the mistakes that we, and I'll freely admit it, one of the mistakes that we made in, in the earlier episodes here is that we focused on single combats. You know, we look at the, uh, the Battle of the Bulge, for instance, or at some of Chugula Yang's tactics and use them in an isolated sort of situation and maybe give a little bit of background. We definitely give a little bit of background, but not nearly as much as I now see as, as necessary. I'm really glad we did that extended uh, study of the Soviets because it really gave me uh, a clearer idea of the best way to give these examples because it is so hard to see how these victories were pulled off without knowing how and the behind-the-scenes stuff that was taking place. And so we've, of course, changed our format now and we're studying these things as a whole series of events. But that's also something that a lot of people make a mistake of. Not just us. The idea of looking back and saying, ah, you know, I'm going to study Marlborough's strategy, you know, in this particular uh, battle. And not just not uh, understanding the rest of the circumstances in which the campaign occurred. The personal issues that were going on, the issues in the army that were occurring, none of this would be taken into account if we look simply at the battle itself. Looking simply at the battle of the, themselves, a lot of times things should end up differently. We look at it and we say, well... Because X, Y, and Z, it should have ended up this way, but it didn't. And we judge theory based on the final result. So, seeing that, that progression helps us understand how to get there ourselves. Helps us understand the steps that might be taken to mimic or improve on a particular winning scenario. And we have to understand, too, that we are not acting alone here. We are, of course, trying to better ourselves. We are, of course, trying to make sure that we are in a position to have the most advantages that we possibly can and undermine our opponent's ability to respond. However, we need to understand that they're doing the same thing. <laughs> so there's always the counter to that. We need to be watching them while we're trying to do it ourselves because these advantages are just as important as the battle itself, if not more so, if not more important than the battle, because they feed into it. So strategy is all of this, right? Strategy incorporates the combats and the possible combats. It incorporates the actual engagement with our enemy with the actions that we take to deter 
our enemy from said engagement and maneuver and manipulate them into a position that is good for us. Because these means and the forms of strategy are very simple. All, these, all of these concepts are very simple. But if they were easy to put into place, we wouldn't need all these big books. We wouldn't need this show. Because the application, the difficulty, is in the execution, right? And if we don't have these certain frames of mind, these certain traits as a, as a commander, it can really make it difficult, especially to hold up against the different uh, slings and misfortunes that we come up against in any real situation. And then, of course, we have the idea of making sure that we enter into this seriously, that we consider any possible combat, any possible complication as being legitimate and to be treated as reality, if only so that we can use it to our advantage. So, coming up, to discuss these ideas with me, this, this, the, the morale and the force that it takes, the, the influence of morale uh, over an army and over a commander, and these various observations we've had over possibilities and efficiency, we are joined by a longtime friend of the show, Juniper. Joining me here today to discuss these ideas of general strategy and taking simple concepts uh, and, and trying to make them as easy as possible is uh, a good friend of mine and longtime friend of the show, Juniper. How are you tonight, Juniper? I am fantastic. Thanks for having me back. <laughs> I'm glad to have you back. I'm <laughs> glad we finally got to recording because you and I have been sitting here making each other giggle for about the past three hours. So <laughs> It's been a while, uh, yeah. But uh, yeah, let's... Uh, Let's talk about these ideas. So you've been you've been involved in multiple units, or in, in the in the one unit, but at multiple levels, and also within like realm politics. Mm -hmm. And so you know quite a bit, I would imagine, over the idea of simple concepts not being easy. For instance, when you deal with actual people, right? right? Absolutely, <laughs> there's no such thing as simple. No, mm -mm. no, they just don't. They don't make it. No, simple, simple ideas, yes. Sure. Yeah. And, and, and that's kind of what Clausewitz is saying about mm -hmm. uh, military science in this section, is he says, none of this stuff is beyond us. Right. Right? The, like, an, an oblique, anybody can do an oblique. Obliques mm -hmm. are cool. They do a thing. But you're not a genius <laughs> if you pull off an oblique. Right. right. Alexander did an oblique. Frederick did an oblique. But the the getting that to, to, to go to the victory, right? Making yeah. sure that that contributes and it's, it's efficient and everything there, that's the part that's hard. Mm-hmm. And so, again, running a realm, pretty easy. You help people get along. You make sure that it, you know, your, your numbers end in the black at the end of your tenure. Right. And, yeah, if nobody gets hit or dies or whatever, like, you've had a su <laughs> success. Success, right? Easy or, or, or simple in thought. Mm -hmm. Hard. <laughs> yes, hard to do. It's like painting. Yeah. You can picture the, paint, the painting in your head, but actually doing it, yeah, is different. Oh, yeah, I can picture mm -hmm. a Monet in my head. Mm -hmm. I can paint myself a mad, mad Coca-Pelli stick figure. <laughs> oh, yeah. Well, you know, third it's, grade all over again. Uh, that's about the level of my drawing skills, so it's okay. But you're making an excellent point, though, where it's an idea of, like, conceptualizing is one thing, but having the skill and the training mm -hmm. to pull it off. Again, you're not a painter. Well, you are right. a painter, but not, well, not like that. Not like that. <laughs> I'm not even any sort of painter. I painted this room. I was going to say. But it's not like this is going on any, like, 
cover of a magazine or this isn't going to be on display in the Met. Which is it could. Cool. <laughs> <laughs> this is modern art. <laughs> but, but no, like I said, you're, you're absolutely correct. Um, this whole idea of, um, yeah, it's, it's a fairly, it a simple... it's a simple concept mm-hmm. to explain. But it's not exactly easy execution to truly understand. Execution is much different, yeah. Yeah, and, and it's you bring up the execution, and you know, let, let's think about the urukai for a second. Mm-hmm. You know, in the early urukai, like when I was involved, it was pretty cool. And one of the things that I loved that it seemed like most people were not as a fan of was like the formations, mm-hmm. the marching and and learning uh, the drills, basically yep. the drills of moving together and learning the commands. And even though some people chaffed at it. You know, it was one of those things where it really worked. Mm-hmm. You know, in those early years, that was part of what kept the Urukai in the formation. Yep. That, that made their victories, because that was the way that y'all worked. Yeah. And so, but how that idea was easy. Like, getting it to work out. Like, let's talk about the process there. Like, making that work on the field. <laughs> you You talk about it beforehand. You have to get the buy-in from... The people that are in the unit, mm-hmm. you know, it starts with the leadership. They discuss it or whatever. Somebody brings it to the leadership. You discuss it. It sounds like a good idea. Everybody gets to a de- whatever degree they're going to buy in. They buy into it. And then you, you know, hypothetically put it into practice. But it's, you know, there's discussion and debate and that kind of stuff that has to be has to go beforehand. And then there's, you know, the mistakes that are made on the field when people are trying to learn that stuff. And, sure. Yeah, it's. It is a totally simple idea, but the the application is, is much different. It takes practice. It takes effort. Mm-hmm. It takes investment. Yeah. And it takes, um, like, there were some flaws that were exposed, too. There have like... never been flaws in the Arakai. You take that back <laughs> right now. <laughs> My apologies. It's a perfect unit with a perfect shield That's ball. Right. That cannot be breached. <laughs> but but uh, it did have some flaws. For instance, um, it didn't respond well to multiple threats on multiple right. sides if it needed to move out of a place. Mm-hmm. And once it was committed to something, trying to uncommit it to that yeah. action was difficult. Yes. So there are still obviously things that needed to be learned mm-hmm. in order to make that more flexible, in order to make it into a more functional theory. Uh, in a previous episode, we discussed criticism mm-hmm. and how it's supposed to shape. Um, did criticism come into it? Were there adjustments to this plan, or was it just taught the same way until everybody else caught on. No, there were definitely adjustments because you also have to take into account the the strong suits and the abilities of your fighters mm-hmm. too because you have some people that are great in a shield wall and not great out on like one-on-one kind of thing. Sure. Um, and then you have other people that are really quick and, you know, great at running around and assassinating people. So you have to you have to make a tactic that works for everybody. Sure. Yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, uh if you got a, a whole unit of flankers mm-hmm. to say everybody work as a, a shield wall, <laughs> a lot of us in the West chafe at that, mm-hmm. you know. Uh, and I think a lot of realms have honestly switched toward that. There's a few of the diehard ones in the Midwest that still really focus on shield wall right. fighting. But I feel like a lot of realms have switched over to skirmish tactics. Yeah. Because they're efficient. You yeah. know, you, you, it's, it's, you're committing as, exactly as much as you need to in any given space. Well, it depends on the type of battle that you're fighting, too, because you don't always need a shield wall. True. You know, it's not going to work on a bridge battle. Well, right. not really, no. <laughs> I don't know. I think that would be the place for it to work. You're not going to get a shield wall, though. You're, you're going to get two people, maybe, hmm. on our bridge battles, anyways. That's fair you enough. know, yeah. 
I was just thinking of the last one. I was at an Auk Fest where you could stand like five abreast. Oh, yeah. See, I haven't seen that one. <laughs> that was cool. That was cool. I didn't want to be anywhere near the front because at that point, mm-hmm. reds are coming straight down. Mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. I, I like the then, idea of bridge battles. Yeah. Yeah, I don't want to be in them. I watch them. Yeah, well, yeah. <laughs> but even then, you have to take into account the people who fight with, like, sword and board mm-hmm. and the people who fight with reds. Because mm. if you're only doing shield wall stuff, you're not taking into account your archers, your red fighters, you know. Yeah. Which are all huge uh, um, probability shifters. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So w- one of the other things that that old Urukai army mm-hmm. um, may have struggled with a little bit was the idea of doing just enough. Because when that Urukai army hit something, it hit them like a freight train. It didn't matter if it was a big <laughs> unit. It didn't matter if it was a small yeah. unit. It was just hit with the same freight train kind mm-hmm. of force. Um, even w- w- with the way that it was set up, would there have been a way to use a bit more of efficient force in that way? Or was it just a massive train of doom? It was a massive train of doom, yes. And I think that... That kind of stuff could have been taught if if that had been something that we... You have to be willing to put in that time investment. Sure. To, to, because, again, you have to get the investment from the people in the realm. Right. Or in the, in the unit, you know, why are we doing it? Why are we doing it this way? Why are we changing, you know? And teaching an individual one thing is different than teaching an entire unit something, too. So you might oh, be able yeah. to explain it to the person, and they get it, but it gets lost in translation in a big unit like that. So... For us, I think it just wasn't worth the time investment, and everybody really enjoyed being a doom train. <laughs> <laughs> and there's something to be said for a doom mm-hmm. train. It is fun. <laughs> Even if it's not efficient, it, it is yeah. a doom train. Yeah. I mean, I don't need the entire fly swatter for the fly, but I'm going to use it. <laughs> <laughs> That's one strategy. <laughs> uh, not the one that Klauswitz uh, recommends, <laughs> but but it is, it is one... Uh, you know, the idea of just massive force mm-hmm. to begin with. It's hard to break against that, though. Like, even if you are a larger force, even, like, just that that sheer volume mm-hmm. crashing in really does a lot in of itself. It is it is a, um, a psychological warfare in and of itself, sure. yeah. And I imagine that it was also most people, even if they had some sort of superiority, whether it was, like, movement or ranged weapons or whatever the case may be, would have hesitated to engage simply because of your size yeah. or the ferocity. Because a lot of times people were banging their shields and mm-hmm. being, being very like animated about it. Which is to say you probably won a lot more battles than you ever actually fought, right? Yes, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> there are... There were a number of times that, that, like, you know, there would be four teams on the field, or four units on the field, and the Urukai's out there, and, like, we don't know if we can maybe beat this other team, so we scare the team over here, and they're like, oh, God, and they run off, and they go fight the other team, and they whittle each other away. So that's a fight we didn't have to do, you guys, and we did it in the sense of we drove them to it, mm-hmm. um, and, yeah, they kind of, you know, <laughs> helped whittle each other down for us, and then we rolled in and cleaned up. Right. Yeah. Well, it's an indirect victory at mm-hmm. that point. Like, even though those two units over there are fighting, those are people being lost mm-hmm. that they won't be able to use when they fight you. Yep. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. That's no, perfect. Yeah. That's the ideal strategy right there. Um, <laughs> Doom Train wins again. <laughs> I do love the Doom Train. I, I, I did enjoy fighting in that shield mm-hmm. wall. It was... There's a very sense of power, especially because of that call and response system. Mm-hmm. If somebody calls out, turn right, yep. everybody screams, turn right. Yep. Like, it was cool. 
There is something really neat about that. The year that we all went out on the field as the Orca Kai mm-hmm. and did whale calls was ridiculous and fun. I'm not sure if I was there for that. It was a Chaos Wars. It I'm was, not sure if I was I there I don't know for if that. you were there for that, but yeah. Yeah, instead of doing the regular, you know, regular cries, we all went out and, yeah, it was amazing and stupid. It's a whole new level of psychological warfare. <laughs> I mean, it's kind of like, um, you know, I, I've noticed in the past that Horde will occasionally go out and just do funny yeah. stuff. Yeah. Like to just do either, like, goofy or stupid or silly stuff, and it makes people drop their guard. Yeah. Because they're like, oh, well, these guys, uh, these guys, look at these people making orca noises, <laughs> or look at these people who are spinning their swords, or whatever the case may be. Mm-hmm. We don't have to take them as seriously. Right. And that that's a whole nother, because, like, intimidating people is also, but making them overconfident. Oh, yeah. To come forward and fight on your terms is nice, too. Yeah, because, I mean, the berserker's terrifying, but the giggling, you know, giggling fool that's going to shank you in the back is pretty scary, too. Very, yeah. Yeah. It's for totally different reasons. Mm-hmm. I didn't like the movie yet. I'm just putting that out there. No, I didn't watch it. I Well, the new one. I have seen the trailers, so I know what happens. <laughs> well, I've seen the first one, so... <laughs> oh. I mean, I assume it's... Who knows? Ameri- I, I just mean to say that, like, uh, the trailers nowadays, like, if you oh, watch yeah. the trailer, you've seen the movie. Yeah. At that point. Yeah. Or if you watch a trailer, you have no idea what the movie's about. Those are the ones I hate. That's true, where it's just, like, a random series of images. Mm-hmm. And you're like, okay... I caught dragons yeah. and silverware and the letter seven. <laughs> Seven's a number. Nope. Not in this movie. <laughs> oh my god. That's right. You're intrigued now, aren't you? <laughs> but do I want to watch it? Dun dun. The letter seven. <laughs> the letter seven. Sounds like a Sesame Street movie. <laughs> <laughs> oh Lord. But yeah, it's like it's that same goofy stuff. It's that like mm-hmm. goofy stuff that makes them drop that that um that ability and they stop regarding it as a possibility they've, yes. d- they've discounted your force and your military strength as mm-hmm. being like okay this this is not going to be um, a big deal mm-hmm. meanwhile they're not preparing for the fact that it's a fully functional unit yeah yeah with vets and people who have training and and they're good with their weapons and yeah, so you, again, you've got intimidation, and then you've got making people let their guard mm-hmm. down. And both are very effective. Yeah, they kind of go hand in hand sometimes. I, I mean, the right kind of intimidation, I guess. Right. Yeah, yeah. People, there have been a number of times, and there have been times where we have forgotten that a unit is on the field because we're oh, they're a small unit, we don't need to worry about them, so mm-hmm. we disregard them, and then we end up getting wiped out as you know they run around our back and and yeah, roll down the line. Right. That has definitely happened. <laughs> well, yeah, I, I, it definitely happens to, to me, too. Mm-hmm. And I think it's happened to everyone. We've all underestimated mm-hmm. some scrappy, you know, small unit of something. Yep. Much like everybody who goes up against my gene stealers the first time <sighs> is like, ha, these guys are going to be easy. I'm like, they're, they're tiny. They'll be easy to kill. Yeah. I mean, individually they are. That's not what I wanted. <laughs> <laughs> and then came the scream. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but in terms of strategy, an event, we don't have the same thing of like a campaign or, or a, an overall, like we're going to move from this place to this place mm-hmm. and then capture this. It's not quite the same, even though over the course of most events, there are, you're working toward like either some sort of banner or overall um, 
award or prize or something mm -hmm. along those lines. And so it does actually turn into a campaign at that point. There are a lot of things that happen there, though. Very, very disparate things that require energy. How do you make sure that you... Because the archive won mm -hmm. before by being able to engage in all the different levels. Right. How are you able to efficiently assign people uh, in order to, to, to capitalize on all those different opportunities? Planning. Lots and lots of planning. Spreadsheets and and stuff like that. We also, I mean, we would do things like we would get on a, a Facebook group or mm -hmm. a, a Discord call or something like that. And we would discuss, you know, how many people do we need to do volunteer shifts? How many people do we need to you know, run Herald stuff or whatever. And we would, we would literally block them out into these spreadsheets and determine how many points we could earn that way. How can we maximize points? And, and we would rotate responsibilities to make sure that people would get time on the field as well as doing these other things. So sure. yeah. it took an, a lot of planning on our part, actually. But it worked out. It did. Yeah. And that's very much what Klauswitz recommends, too, mm -hmm. is just making sure you go in with as much planned for as you can, mm -hmm. un understanding that there's going to be uh, things that go wonky. Yeah. You know, somebody might get sick. Or, yeah, or, or not be able to show up last minute kind of thing. And so we, we did kind of have, like, you know, backup people plan for that, too. Yeah. Perfect. Yeah. Contingencies. Mm -hmm. That's where it's at. Mm-hmm. But the overall plan was the same. Of course, you're you're reaching for that one goal. You're reaching yes. for the, um, the banner. The banner mm -hmm. in that particular case, and 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 many of those things were not combat related, mm -hmm. but they contributed to the overall victory. Absolutely, yes. Yeah. And there's a lot of things like that in um, 40k as well too. Like there's the actual fighting of the opponent's mm -hmm. army and trying to whittle them down. But especially in this new edition, the objectives yeah. are more important in this particular case. Yep. And so in getting those objectives while they are not specifically combat related, mm -hmm. very physically, very much points wise matter in contributing to the overall victory. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And there's, so these, there's objectives and then there's, what are the cards again? The secondaries? Yeah. Or, yeah. or yeah, those are the ones that sometimes you, when we play the different game type, you can like pick your secondary objectives. Yep. yep, yep yeah. Yep. I was just making sure I had the right term, but it's yeah you there are definitely some of those that are not combat related but do lead towards the whole overall victory sure yeah yeah i mean i've got a couple in uh, in my arsenal for instance uh things that help like uh, a speed boost mm -hmm. to some of my bikers you know it's not directly combat related i'm not doing damage to your army but mm -hmm. by maneuvering those bikers behind you and getting right. my crossfire on you i've then contributed to the combat victory of my army mm -hmm. even though the move itself was not didn't wasn't offensive yeah it wasn't a yeah. fight in of itself mm -hmm. yeah which is good you know which is good yeah i mean i find it offensive just because you're probably gonna kill my guys but <laughs> we'll find out we'll find out and then the <laughs> listeners will find out too i tend i typically gab about my games yeah on here to demonstrate a point i'm also garbage with strategy when it comes to warhammer so you approach warhammer much like you approach poker yes and you win i win at poker <laughs> i win at poker yeah, not so much Warhammer because oh, it's see. because I don't do what he recommends you do. What Klauswitz recommends you do, you know, is to like stay on target and mm. and you know keep that. I mean, sure, I have the overall mindset of obviously I want to win, but I am I am like the wind when it comes to you know this is my plan for right now, and then thirty seconds later it's a totally different plan, and I have no idea what I'm doing. <laughs> well, I mean that and that sort of. Um, misdirection, that mm -hmm. sort of indecision, which plagues many of us. Mm -hmm. um, you know, it, it's because we're not the genius 
that he right. speaks of sometimes. You know, we may have one or two of the of the of the things that he talks about, but most of us do not have great strength of character, uh, clarity of thought and perception, and a steadiness of mind. Mm-hmm. Like all three of those traits in one person, that's not common. Right. You know, our Fredericks, our our you know Napoleons, they are mm-hmm. not commonplace. Thank God. Yeah. <laughs> Which is why we read books about them. Right. <laughs> But uh, even just having any of this, though, is good. And, and, and you can see it like yes. this isn't even like an actual campaign, but throughout the course of a Warhammer game, you know, that, that strength of character, that ability to be like, all right, I'm pushing ahead. Mm-hmm. I suffered some some uh, setbacks, or whatever the case may be, but I'm pushing ahead. I know I, I, my boldness will not disappear. Mm-hmm. You know, the perception, being able to go, okay, I know where I need to go and how I need to get there right. and what my opponent is doing and, and kind of how to counter that. And of course, that steadiness, not getting upset, not getting mm-hmm. like on tilt uh, based on what is going on. And many of us can do one, maybe even two of those things, right. but doing all three perfectly all the time. Yeah, no, that's not my jam. No, I've lost many a Necrons to, <laughs> to my, you know, changing of tactics constantly. Right. Yeah. Right. And I mean, there's, it's the balance though, isn't it? Because, like, you have to be willing to change because, like, the, the situation does. Yeah. And being flexible means that you don't just walk right into a trap. Mm-hmm. But, in the same uh, idea, you do need to be, like, driven. Mm-hmm. So, and maybe that's why I do better at poker is I'm a money-driven person. <laughs> we'll just we'll put money on our next Warhammer game. We'll see how it goes. Okay. You want to play for keeps? <laughs> play for oh, my games? God. Play for keeps? No. It's like marbles, right? <laughs> These are expensive marbles. They are very, mm-hmm. very expensive marbles. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> oh, like I would cry. Yeah, yeah. No, and and some of these things, like that that steadiness of mind and strength of character, when we're dealing with actual military history, would have been needed in such a higher degree because mm-hmm. of and not just the the stress of being on the trail and you know the weapons going off and that sort of thing, but for just the moral toll absolutely that it takes you know on, on a person when they are exposed to suffering privation fear sacrifice mm-hmm. of their people that uh, that's hard to bear yeah for long periods of time you know imagine Washington at Valley Forge mm-hmm. and the and the horrific things that you read about that particular winter and he kept it together that's what makes him such that icon right yeah Right. I mean, he was a he was a good commander, and then there, like that fortitude mm-hmm. is really what pushed uh, the Americans to be able to achieve victory in that war. Yeah. But it was that strength of character, right, in that commander who pushed for that, which is all. But we don't have that same mm-hmm. problem. Like yeah, no, I'll sacrifice a piece of plastic. <laughs> right. Yeah. Or if we're in Bell, you know, people might get wet and soggy if, yeah. if, the, if it's raining or something or if it's cold people might be uncomfortable mm-hmm. but people aren't going to be starving to death they're not right. going to be like losing limbs yeah. or or anything along those lines we're not dealing with the plague right no. well, okay scratch it reverse it um, <laughs> we're not dealing with cholera <laughs> yeah, be specific on your plagues please <laughs> right we have many now um, we're not we're dealing with cholera or typhus or anything along those lines, mm-hmm. but we d- do still have discomforts that can come right. around. And again, as somebody who's been a part of a unit in a realm at various levels, that still has an effect. Oh yeah. If you get somebody who, who, you know, they come to an event and they have brought their 
their tent with them and they forgot their tent poles mm. and now they have nowhere to sleep mm-hmm. you know and they're just going to crash out by the fire and whatever they're not going to sleep well they're not going to be performing it you know peak performance tomorrow because they're tired and grumpy and whatever but it's not to the same degree that uh, certainly nothing washington was you know worried about <laughs> right or or you know what these guys were experiencing in the in the 1790s mm-hmm. parading around um even if even if somebody does get a boo boo we have uh, antiseptic mm-hmm. which they didn't have so that's yeah, awesome. Yeah. <laughs> Even just that. <laughs> but it still takes a toll, you know, like if, if, especially since that's that one person's experience. Mm-hmm. So let's say that one person sleeps by the fire. They don't sleep well. You know, they're, they're not fully in it at mm-hmm. that point. Uh, another person um, eats too much before the fight and has um, an upset stomach mm-hmm. of some sort. There's a lot of different factors that play into whether or not a unit is going to perform well mm-hmm. that particular day. And a lot of it comes down to the individual stuff, but on a commander themselves, on the, on the leader themselves, not only do these same, like, you know, if you're listening to the complaints, and I, mm-hmm. and I mean perfectly valid sometimes complaints of, of unit mates, it can distract. Yes. <laughs> you know, it, it can get up in your head. And if our own morale starts to slip as a commander... You know, that does, that's not good either. No, that's not going to help anybody. Yeah, no. Mm-mm. Yeah, so if, if a commander, let's say that um, even aside from everything else, aside from a, a unit perhaps not sleeping well or being too cold or having some sort of drama break out within it as mm-hmm. the, you know, the French army was absolutely dealing with in the, <laughs> you know, the 1790s at that mm-hmm. point, they were dealing with all this other stuff that was happening, it becomes even worse if the commander starts to participate. Oh, yeah. Or starts to, like, have their mood drop, too. Because, you know, like, in the case of Washington, he was far removed. Mm-hmm. You know, he, he put himself above and away. And so, in some ways, he could be seen, not like a divine figure, but, like, yeah, the inspiration in that way. He was just a man. He was a bastion, though. Yeah, you know? but he had yeah. to be that bastion of hope. Napoleon mm-hmm. was the same way. The emperor, he inspired so mm-hmm. much devotion. Um you know, they had they had a very similar like the the um, the ideals of the revolution were something that inspired, but one of the things that, but sometimes what they would lack and sometimes we lack is that that kind of focus, that brings it all into into uh, a depth and mm-hmm. the focus on the self and, and if the commander starts to degradate, yes. right? If they start to be seen as slovenly or or weak, mm-hmm. in in many cases. Um, that starts to promote dad, bad discipline because mm-hmm. who needs that starts to trickle down as well. And you see that in Bellegarth a lot because you, you very much lead by example there. So if your unit leaders get trashed the night before and they're hungover the next morning and they're not out on the field, they're not driving people to weapon check, like go get weapons checked or whatever, everybody else in the lower ranks are going to be like, meh. Right. Yeah. Uh, unless you've got like some really go-getter sergeant who's going to mm-hmm. be on that, by and large, yeah, it's it's the upper echelon that gives orders mm-hmm. to the middle guys, and they go down to the little ones, and mm-hmm. and like you said, if there's a bad motivation, or if there was like a a disconnect, let's say, yeah. like I, I don't think this very much happened, but let's say there was some sort of political fallout between the leaders, mm-hmm. and there was that stress there, why that would deg- like degrade the the sanctity of that unit even more. Yeah, absolutely. It starts to split and then doesn't function as mm-hmm. a whole, which is not what we're looking for no. either. <laughs> um, and of course they lose respect too. Mm-hmm. Like if a person becomes, and this is not to say that we need to be false with one another oh, in this right. community, but when it comes to being a commander on the field or off the field, there is a certain degree of, of what we're talking about mm-hmm. here. Um, and not to say that a person can't 
feel what they feel. But right. a leader is supposed to lead. They're the ones who are supposed to do the hard thing. Like, yeah, I'm sure Washington had feelings. Oh, yeah. You know? I mean, he wrote about it in his diary. He, he, yeah. was, he suffered. But his, his men didn't know that. No. You know, yeah. No. I mean, That's... they knew he cared for them, but mm-hmm. they didn't know how, like, conflicted it made him. Mm-hmm. Um, and again, that had to be kept inside. But even aside from that, it's really just the bad attitude. For, right. For us, that's the really big killer. Mm-hmm. If you have commanders who have a bad attitude coming on the field, again, that spreads like wildfire. Yeah, even if you have bad leadership in Belagarth, that mm-hmm. will spread through realms and, and, yeah, same thing. Yeah. So we have to look for these same things. We have to try to have our strength of character. Mm-hmm. Of course, try to uh, strive for some sort of integrity mm-hmm. and maintain that accountability. Um, but we also need to be able to see things and not be, be clouded right. by a bunch of other crap, you know, because there's a lot of stuff that, <laughs> that comes with it that you have to sift through mm-hmm. to find the actual truth or what's useful right. for the situation. Uh, and it always helps to be steady, too, just kind of going over these traits. But, like, you know, that one's, that one's hard. That's my hard one, yeah. That's a hard one. Yeah. yeah. Uh, because it's sometimes I think sports helps with this or it mm-hmm. really doesn't, one of the two. Because a lot of, like, half, I feel about half the folks who come from any sort of athletic, uh, you know, sporty background, mm-hmm. they, you just can't get in their head. Particularly competitive folks, like uh, folks in soccer. Right, okay. You know, there's so many different physical head games that are played there that if you're trying to get in that person's head or put them on tilt, a lot of times you can't. Because they're just used to dealing with that kind of pressure. Right. And they don't let you. And then you, of course, have the exact opposite side of just the hotheads right. <laughs> who are willing to engage with anything. Mm-hmm. Most of us fall in between. Right. Uh, a spectrum in between. And it largely depends on the day, too. I was going to say, yeah, a lot of us are on a pendulum. pendulum? If you come into yeah. it, <laughs> if, if most people were to come into a fight or a, a match and they're well-rested, and they get, mm-hmm. they're getting along with their partner and or friends and or family, and they've eaten well and mm-hmm. have been healthy and, like, all those other things, then it is much easier for them to take a win or a loss and, and just kind of maintain a nice steadiness of mind yep. to it. But if we come into it and we didn't sleep well mm-hmm. and we're hungry and we're quarreling with somebody or whatever the case may be and we're already compromised, mm-hmm. that's when the steadiness of, of mind really is necessary. Yeah. That is, it is hard to do with Warhammer. I think, for me, anyways, yeah. you know. Do you yeah. think it's harder for Warhammer than it would, like, it's harder for the intellectual wargaming than for the physical? It's, well, and it's not even, I guess it's not even that. It's more that when I'm at an event, mm-hmm. I'm I'm at the event. I'm sleeping at the event. Like, right. I, everything I'm doing is about the event. Mm-hmm. When it's Warhammer, I'm like, oh, I have work today, and then later on I'm going to play Warhammer. So everything mm-hmm. else is taking precedent before the game. So if I didn't sleep well last night... Mm-hmm tough you know right. i still have a game tonight but if i'm at an event it's what i'm doing sure yeah it's a little bit more all-encompassing i guess well and, and it talks you're speaking very much to when Clausewitz is talking about the difference between the strain on our senses between tactics and strategy yes you know when you're right there like when you're in the event and you're there on the field or dealing with people in a visceral physical mm-hmm. sense it is easier to be swept up in the moment mm-hmm. and and do what needs to be done right yes Whereas if we're doing something like Warhammer, like you say, we have a lot longer to think about things. See, and my, my thing is I always push it off. I'll, I'll worry about strategy later. I'll think about strategy later. Mm-hmm. I'll take a nap before I play or, you know, like I'll eat later. That sure. kind of stuff. And then, you know, you don't actually follow up on that, which right. he also advises not to do, to not follow up on your other plans. But <laughs> Sure. 
Sure. And again, a lot of this, a lot of the advice that he offers here is uh, simple, but not easy. Not easy. No, he would be very disappointed in me. <laughs> I'm pretty sure he would be disappointed in most of us. But he's Prussian. He'd be disappointed. He's, yeah, he's sassy. He is sassy. <laughs> I was kind of shocked. Oh. Well, Juniper, this has been absolutely lovely, <laughs> and I'm, I'm sure that we're going to continue chatting uh, mm-hmm. after this, but uh, we have reached our limit for the interview, <laughs> and let me just say thank you so much for coming on Absolutely. Again. I love coming on here. Well, you'll certainly be back. Yeah, and, I'm sure. And <laughs> uh, you know, for the rest of us, let's jump right in to uh, the wonderful happen- the happenings of 1793. would prove to be one of those pivotal years that seems to have affected a large portion of world history. 1793 would would begin with this defeat and treason of Dumouriez, if we remember from our last episode. Now this defeat and treason greatly intensified the political situation in Paris. It was already hairy there. Remember that we had discussed that before, how the reforms of the revolutionaries were being ill-received in some ways, in some places, and uh, that there was this constant infighting. There was no central organized party. You had a lot of different people who had a lot of different voices that were attempting to get something ironed out in, in, in very short time. And things were going by the wayside, and so like the political atmosphere was extreme already, but it was becoming increasingly dominated by extremists, by those who held more zealot views than their countrymen did. And this was also a dangerous time of year in general. All pre-industrial societies had to deal with the fact that spring and early summer were the most dangerous times for any regime because of the harvest issues. You know, in late summer and autumn and in winter you have the harvest seasons and then plenty of stores left over but as we move into spring and into the early summer before the harvests begin in in these times there was usually inflation of some sort the price of grain would double triple quadruple and there would always be threats or 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 rumors let's say of food shortages and so that's that's the time of year that we're already in. This is a pre-industrial uh, uh, country that has already been suffering with food issues. You know, it's not like they've been flush this entire time. They've been struggling to feed their people. They've been struggling to feed their army. And so people were already stressed about that. Like, we don't, already ha- we don't have food, and it looks like we're going to get less. So Paris is bubbling over at this point. There's a whole lot that is not... It is not doing well there, but it isn't wholly dependent on the war. The situation in Paris is not something that one can point at the war and say, that is exactly what caused it. That's reductionist. Of course, there, was, there were other things at play. But the fact that the war was having such an effect proves the effect of foreign policy on a country as a whole. You have to meet with the acceptance. As an American, I have to harken back to the Vietnam War, and no slant against our soldiers who have served there, 
but our foreign policy grew to be condemned by our people. It became because of the uh, the media, for the most part, and their accurate portrayal of a horrific conflict. The country turned against it, but the country wouldn't have cared so much about it if that foreign policy hadn't affected them. And the effect was, of course, through their media, through what they were viewing. The foreign policy that was at play during World War II in this country that made it so that rubber and food and steel were being rationed so that the war machine could be fed, that was real. That foreign policy was driven home. And, and nowadays, that's not as real for most of us. You know, we stand with the people of the Ukraine who are experiencing this stuff firsthand and how, and how that foreign policy can absolutely affect. And that's affecting us here at home, too. So this idea that a country is isolated from the rest of the world and from, from the activities of its armies is just not true. Just like when this army was first formed in 1792, this army of volunteers going forth, there was this great patriotic zeal. Everybody was super into it. But then there came the defeats, and there came the issues with the army, and then there came the fact that nobody wanted to volunteer again. And if you recall at the beginning of 1793, where they decided to do they are their mass conscription, it did not go well. That showed the state of the country, that showed the state that the foreign policy had driven it. Because in 1792, if we remember that army of volunteers, those folks who stood up and they were, they were there because they wanted to be. They were there because they believed fervently in the values of the revolution. That army managed to win victories that other ones would not have, simply because of that boldness of spirit. The fact that everybody was on board with this same ideological principle gave them power. They had numbers, they had spirit, and those two things count for a lot. But by 1793, that had bled away. Most people had gone home, and the early conscription efforts did not work well. And so, it was a state of bad news. The National Assembly is getting nothing but bad news. For instance, they're engaged in war on five fronts. Of course, we have the Austrians, who have now pushed through Belgium, retaking their holdings in the um, Netherlands, and they are now on to French soil. The Prussians have driven them out of their holdings in the Rhineland, which were a huge, of huge psychological import in terms of propaganda and in terms of, of having that space, that buffer zone. The Spanish had advanced from the south all the way to the River Tet. And then, of course, you have their issues coming from within. You have the counter-revolutionaries that we had discussed who were in the West. And then there was a Federalist revolt across the country against what they considered Parisian radicals. There is an exaggerated, most likely, estimate that two-thirds of the country was in revolt. That's interesting, isn't it? You have a revolution that's supposed to be for the people and the entire country hates it. <laughs> I think it's because of the infighting if you want my unsolicited opinion. But this is a bad place to be. These leaders and the country that they're trying to create, this is a bad place to be, or is it? Because this situation has given certain extremists exactly what they need to succeed. Remember that war is based in politics. 
and it is influenced by, absolutely, unequivocally influenced by politics. The same is true anywhere. If we look at wargaming, especially at the more social, um, communal war games, like the physical ones, SEA, Bellegarth, we can see how important this is. But this transition, which was which began four years previous, was now complete. I want to read you a, a statement that the National Assembly ma made concerning this. This was on the 23rd of August, 1793. From this moment until that in which our enemies shall have been driven for the territory of the Republic, all Frenchmen are permanently requisitioned for terms of service in the army. The young men shall fight. The married men shall forge weapons and transport supplies. The women will make tents and clothes and serve in the hospitals. The children will make up old linen into lent. The old men will have themselves carried into the public squares to rouse the courage of fighting men, to preach unity of the Republic and hatred of kings. The public buildings shall be turned into barracks. The public squares into munitions factories. The earthen floors themselves will be treated with lye to extract the saltpetre. All firearms of suitable caliber shall be turned over to the troops. The interior shall be policed with shotguns and with cold steel. All saddle horses shall be seized for the cavalry. All draft horses not employed in cultivation will draw the artillery and supply wagons. They called this at the time levy en masse, which is a, a mass levy, right, as the name implies. But this was something else. What they were having here, what, what they had by mobilizing the entire country to the war effort, was one of the first instances of total war, the concept of total war, in which the entirety, the whole crux of a nation, churns on the war effort. As it shows here, nobody Nobody is spared it. It's not just the fighting aged men who are being called up here like an, a levy en masse would have. It's the married men. It's the women, the children, the old men. Every square inch of the Republic being called up to war. Now this is a huge deal because all wars excite popular notion. All wars make it so that, that the people even turn on each other. There is no real eternal conflict between Japan and the United States. And yet there is still some perpetual racism that exists in the United States because of our conflict with Japan. There was a notable increase in hate crimes against those of Semitic descent after 9-11 when the humors of the nation turned against people from those regions. They were excited. Their humors were excited. Their hatred was excited. And the whole country wasn't necessarily that way, but the whole country was spared from the war effort. There were those of us who joined up afterwards. There were those of us who were excited to action, but the majority of the country, while at first waving their red, white, and blue and singing their country songs, calmed down. And this is because it was a normal war. It was a war that allowed the people, that allowed America to settle back in to normal. 
Total war is different. Total war consumes everything. The social sphere, the economic sphere, what they were talking about, what the National Convention had agreed here, changed the face of the entire country. And this is exactly what they wanted. If you remember back a couple of episodes ago, there were certain extremists within the National Convention that had pushed for this a long time ago, four years previous. And it had taken a while. It had taken a while for it to actually be realized as something that was tenable, as something that could be accepted slash forced upon the population. There are other examples of total war in our history to demonstrate the, the terror that can come out of these things. There was a particularly evil man who once address, addressed the, uh, the German public. And he used the words, Wallet ihr den totalen Krieg? The German is awful, by the way. Wallet ihr den totalen Krieg? Which means, do you want total war? The man was Goebbels. And he was addressing the Nazis. And they cheered for it. Thunderous applause within the chamber for this concept of transforming the industry, transforming the very fabric of society in the country to the aim of military success. There's, a, there's games out. I, I know there's some games that are like medieval total war and that sort of thing. And I think like the fog of war, they take a cool concept and they make something fun out of it. But the real, the reality of total war is very, very, very oppressive. And at the time that this was de decreed, it seemed like the Republic was doomed. Either from the external threats, remember that they had the Austrians pushing down from the north, the Prussians in from the east, the Spanish coming up from the south, and then of course they had just about every person in the country up in revolt against their revolt. Revolting against the revolt, counter-revolt. So the Republic seems doomed at this point. Part of what saves it is this transition to revolutionary war? Is this transition to utilizing the entire country as a battery for the war machine? And part of bringing it to this place, part of making this revolutionary war, this revolutionary army a reality, was the newly created Committee of Public Safety. Committee of Public Safety. Well, that sounds nice, doesn't it? They deal with... Uh, Puppies, child-proofing homes, public safety, perhaps even policemen, cops, firefighters? Hmm. No. No, instead, this Committee of Public Safety was a direct campaign against enemies of the revolution. That would be the safety they refer to. Keeping the public safe from the enemies of the revolution, and the reason they were able to gain foothold was everything we've discussed previously. This committee would not have been formed in the early days of the revolution. It would not have been tolerated, partially because there were so many dissenting voices that would have existed within the National Committee itself. But those voices had long ago been silenced. All throughout this time, all throughout... Uh, 1792 and 1793, the extremists were gaining ground. Oftentimes, it's the extremists 
who speak the most fervently, the most passionately, and in the, in the way that inspire those who are downtrodden. Think about Hitler. The man could speak. The man could stand up and, and bring in the attention of an entire nation. He was an evil man, and he used that attention for evil aims to moralize something, which I know we're not supposed to do on the show, but I think we can agree that Nazi's bad. But he was able to attain that prominence in some fashion because of his speaking ability, because of his ability to reach in there, but it was, it was also extreme. It spoke to the extreme feelings that were occurring in the German public, and that was happening here too. There were moderates. There were people who wanted peace with the rest of Europe. There were people who wanted a constitutional monarchy democracy, like there were all sorts of folks that were pushing for various ideas, but slowly they were being edged out. When we first started this section, we talked about how the National Committee's headquarters, that massive aerodrome that they apportioned after Versailles and Paris became theirs, and it very quickly went from some sort of hall, a serious discussion hall, to a circus a place where the political pageantry ruled. It wasn't about the matter of debate. It was a matter of how it was debated. The substance didn't necessarily matter as long as the passion was there. And those are the folks that got support. And the more that the revolution was pressed upon, the more that their enemies won victories, the more people in the countryside rebelled. This hardened the hearts of the revolutionaries and made it so that the extremists could take over. Because the street extremists were the only ones who were speaking to the degree in which people felt. It was emotional reasoning. So by degrees, we transition from something that had very liberal ideas. That had, had an idea of freeing society from the shackles of the monarchy. And promoting people to live their lives, but it, like to have this, this idea of a secular government division of powers, all this sort of thing was very nice. But here we are in August of 1793 with a very, very, very different political situation because of the losses. The terror, you would think, the term, the terror, would be some sort of yellow page journalism, some critic from America or the UK, printing about the terror, the awful things that were happening within revolutionary France at the time to try, to try to discredit it, right? No, that name was used by the National Convention themselves. It wasn't an insult from the opponents, but the, quote, order of the day, September the 5th, National Convention, terror, using terror as a state policy. And at this point, pluralism is gone. We no longer have people sitting down at tables to discuss different opinions. At this point, different opinions, bad. The only opinion worth having was that of the revolutionary state. And so what we have now is a revolutionary state dictatorship, which has really become everything that it hated. You had the monarchy, an entrenched system that didn't listen to the will of the people, didn't serve the will of the people, being replaced by a dictatorship <laughs> that's not listened to. Uh, it doesn't take into account the will of the people. It's funny how that happens. So this committee 
was there to try to, to try to mitigate the things of before, to try to foresee issues before they occurred. Robespierre, by the way, was a member of this committee. And it was to prevent things like Dumouriez or Lafayette, generals who had been, uh, who a lot of trust had been put into, who ended up betraying the cause. In the case of Dumouriez, he almost got, got on his plan toward convincing the army to defect with him. Both of these guys did, Lafayette and Dumouriez. Both of them tried to get the army to defect with them, or at least parts, the artillery or the cav or whatever the case may be. And so this was a serious danger, right? You have all these troops and, and every single one of them counts toward this war effort. But you know, these commanders, these, these separate commanders that are you know, a huge security risk. So they, they say no central commander. We're not going to deal with this anymore. We're not going to deal with a, a Lafayette Dumouriez situation. We've already had too much of this over the past year. And so instead, Lazare Carnot is elected to the Committee of Public Safety, a politician. And his job is going to be to kind of run this from the center because there still does need to be a single controlling will at the center. We can't just have these disparate armies working on their own. Because that was part of the problem before. You had Dumouriez that was largely running uncontested in the north and doing his thing. And then there were the folks in the west and the east. And they didn't necessarily communicate. Again, these revolutionary ideals of equality without having this strata, without having this, this uh, military hierarchy. Which is necessary for the, con for the conduct of a war. And so they developed these different armies, right? These holding armies in the Pyrenees, the Alps, and the Rhine to make sure that their enemies could not advance further, and then planned, much like the previous plan, was to strike north. And this was for a number of reasons. You might wonder, why did they come up with the exact same plan? Wouldn't that be predictable? They struck north the first time, failed, struck north again, did better, then fell back, and they're going to strike north again. Surprise, surprise. But... Do they really have any other choice? If they're trying, going to try to conquer, conquer land, free more people, then they need to get more land. And if they move to the west, there's the English Channel, and then England, which is not necessarily the way that they want to go. If they go to the south, well, they've got Spain, but that's about it. Spain and Portugal is what you're going to find down there. Moving to directly to the east, you run into the Alps, in which case if you slide south into the Sardinia-Piedmont region, you have a massive choke point right there. Unless you decide to Hannibal that particular situation, which is far less effective when you have the kind of <laughs> um, surveillance that they would have at this time. Wouldn't have worked as well as it did in, in the Punic Wars. So the only place to go, really, is to the north. That's where all the good stuff is. That's where the Dutch Republic is. It's where the um, very rich resources of the Rhineland are. Kind of the northeast there. So of course they go to the north. So this is a very different France than we were seeing in the beginning. And this is as we're getting into the terror. And for those of us who are not necessarily super read up on history, the terror is that time in France that is famous. When you have all the beheadings, all the different royal people, all the dissenting opinions, everyone getting up there to the stake. Even people from the same party as it goes on. Like, it, it gets ferocious and it gets brutal. 
The state did not benefit from this. Nobody benefits from a so-called witch hunt. And so we see this, uh, this uh, well, I would call it a degeneration. But of course, the revolutionists, or the, the revolutionaries that wanted this total war situation, they would call it an improvement. Perfect, in fact. Played right into their hands, really. And that, uh, it, it gave me chills, that, uh, that little reading that we had, <laughs> the statement from the National Convention. Reading that gave me chills. Because that kind of dedication to a cause, well, that's dangerous. But this would mean a lot of different things. This, I mean, this was huge. They had that conscription of 500,000 after this, that levy en masse that they couldn't do before. Well, you got a total war situation now. Everybody is already dedicated to the war effort. Was there resistance? Sure. Was that resistance put down with shotguns and with cold steel? Yes, it was. So the state dictatorship already sets the stage for the future. In only a few short years, we're going to see an emperor come onto the scenes. And that emperor could not have existed without this framework having existed, which was then, of course, propped up by the fact that there was no existing framework to begin with. The stresses of the, the five-front war, the, Repu the fledgling republic was not prepared to deal with that. So it became something very different, something that was very much against what it was in the beginning. And in doing all of this, it demonstrated some of the pitfalls that we covered in our first section. We can see here that all the fine thoughts in the world, all the revolutionary ideals that sounded fantastic in the world, do not matter if their final result isn't successful. And the, the difficulty lies in execution. Again, these ideals are fantastic. This, this perfect society that they're wanting to build is a very simple idea, but difficult to execute. And in all of this, of course, we see them turning away from, from logic in many cases, and that's what led, leads to this, this dissolution. But to build it back up, they have to understand, and they begin to understand, once again, this idea of possible combats. The combats that are fought, and the combats that are simply implied. And we're going to see a very different story moving forwards, because this, these actions, as controversial as they may be, save France, from the various enemies at this time. Perhaps not from itself, but that's a story for a different time. That's our show. Thank you so much for listening. If you haven't had enough of the art of wargaming in your life, you can find us on Facebook and Instagram, where I occasionally post funny and educational memes. If you want to get touch with the show directly, you can email us at artofwargamingpodcast at gmail.com with any questions, comments, or concerns that you might have. Also be sure to check out all of our sister shows on the Earworm Network, including General Nerdery, Word Balloons, Fried Squirms, and more. We're working hard on having something for everyone. And again, you can find those at earworm.com. That's E-A-R-V-V-Y-R-M. You can also find that in the show notes. But for now, this has been Yaga Malark, signing off. Mm -hmm.